0: It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 32, Long Time No See. To review the book, I'm joined by Two Visions from the World of Dreams. <laughs> Mr Morgan, going to school in his pyjamas, brown. Hello there. And Mr Stephen, going to school in the nude, Royston. Hello. My name is Paul Abbott, and last night I had the strangest dream I ever dreamed before. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. I dreamed I saw a mighty room. The room was filled with men, and the paper they were signing said they'd never fight again. And then I woke up. <laughs> a little bit of a protest something. Yeah, lovely. So enough of that bit of nonsense. (laughs) The bit about dreams will make sense as we go along. Anyway, the reason I'm saying that. Indeed. Remember, everyone, you can visit us at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for Hark87 Podcast. You can also email us at hark87podcast at gmail.com. No one ever does, so it'd be nice if you did. (laughs) And if you want to help us out, then please leave a review on whatever podcast app you use, but especially Apple Podcasts, because that helps us to reach more people. We're back and it's 2020. It is. Happy New Year everyone. It's still still January so we can say that technically I think. Anyway. Yeah, it's fine. Isn't this
1: one of the years that everyone was going to be flying around in flying cars? Yeah,
0: 2020 does feel fairly futuristic, doesn't it? Uh, you know. Flying that, that cars, kind of
1: tubes
2: up to the moon,
0: food in pill <laughs> format. That, yes, that,
2: that kind of all that stuff. Yeah, I always thought that was supposed to happen by now. Yeah, early days, yeah. Probably what? by March or so. Yeah, yeah.
0: We'll everyone's, got, everyone's got to get back to work after the Christmas yeah. holidays and sort all this stuff out, haven't they? Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Um, well,
1: you know, I'm quite looking forward to that.
0: That'll be good, won't it, when yeah. we're... Um, and you can just hologram over here or whatever. Yeah. Or <laughs> transport magically, Star Trek style. Yeah, so it may be 2020 now, but we're going to be looking at a book from 1977. Oof which is the 32nd of 55 books. We, um, we're getting on with it.
1: Astonishing, isn't it, really? Yeah,
0: we won't be far off in getting into the 80s soon. 32. So Blimey. What I'll do is I will give you a little bit of a Ed McBain background, what else was going on in the period since the last book. 1977 sees only three short stories published by Ed McBain or Evan Hunter or whatever re- name he was using. One is called Sebastian the Cat, and that's in Playboy, so I suspected it's not yeah. just about a happy-go-lucky cat. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's,
2: that's
0: a nice name for a cat, isn't it, sebastian's is.
2: Lovely. In June
0: 1977, he published something called Code Name Petals, and that was in. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> about
1: a cat as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that was in Woman's Own Weekly in three okay. consecutive issues. So I'm not sure if that's an extract from a, a different book, but mm. yeah. Code name Petals ended up in Woman's Own Weekly. Sebastian the Cat in Playboy. Lucky he didn't send them off to the wrong, <laughs> <laughs> the wrong publishers. And in November 1977, there was a in Rogner's magazine in Germany. Rogner's, Rogner's, and I'll try and get this pronunciation right. Kursgeschichte. That sounds about right. Kurzgeschichte. It's otherwise known as short, short story in its English oh, title. Wo ist das?
2: Kurzgeschichte. Yeah,
0: yeah, that sounds about right. Kaiser <laughs> <laughs> So that was only three short stories. As by this point, he's only doing the occasional one that turns up in Playboy or something like that. Not like 20 years before when he was just doing hundreds and yeah. hundreds of them. But 1977 does see the publication of Goldilocks, which is the first book in the Matthew Hope series oh, right. yep, yep, yep. of which I've not read
1: any of those. Now I've got a big pile of them and read none of them. Yeah, I've got a couple um, awaiting perusal, but... I think it supposed to be alright though because he did persevere with them for quite a
0: while, didn't he? He did. I think he ran out of steam with them eventually because I think he... Much of the, as the reason the 87th Precinct series is good is because police are supposed to be investigating mm. crimes. He got to a point a bit... With Matthew Hope, I think where he's going, like, well, a lawyer wouldn't be doing this. I can, I, I can only think of so many excuses to get a lawyer into investigating this crime when he shouldn't be.
2: Yeah, I think he kind of alludes to that issue in the the foreword to the latter latter day editions of um, Cop Hater, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, basically, I think so. Yeah. But. The Goldilocks, uh, the Goldilocks, the Matthew Hope books, starting with Goldilocks, are set in Florida, and essentially Matthew Hope lives in the place that McBain was living at the time, because <laughs> him and his then wife, Mary Van, had moved down to Florida, in fact to Lido Shores, Sarasota, Florida, and that's essentially where he sets the Matthew Hope mm, uh, books wrong. I'm led to believe. So he must have been a bit like Quincy sticking his nose in where (laughs) he's
1: had no jurisdiction.
0: (laughs) Basically. Yeah, most non-cop based crime things, if you think about it, would actually be over in five minutes when the first policeman that the mystery author or coroner or whoever it is turned up would go, no, you shouldn't be here. (laughs) And you being here is going to really mess things up.
1: Yeah, I think that's quite, in quite a lot of the series you read, like the uh, the whole basis of whether any good is how not trying to get that to be contrived, you know, yeah. the ability of the author yeah. to make it, obviously nine
2: out of ten involve law enforcement people, but. I I'm I'm sure McBain will do a pretty good job of handling that, but still it's it's gotta be tricky to do it over and over again for a whole series. Yeah. And the Tra-
1: Travis Travis, Travis McGee, John D. McDonalds are quite good and they have this fairly preposterous <laughs> concept of a guy who salvages anything, doesn't he? Like lost yeah. fortunes or people or whatever, which is a bit daft, but it's still quite a good ruse for getting him in various places he he shouldn't be scrapes yeah
0: yeah you can you can do it if you set up the right situation and your readers expect a certain yeah you know yeah you'll you'll let them off with it basically
1: exactly yeah
0: but i should just mention that although uh, i did say that evan hunter mary van and her daughter amanda finley were living in florida they were also living there with their cat who was called higgins (laughs) higgins (laughs) Is is that a better name than sebastian I think uh, Higgins is a better name alike. for a
2: cat. Yeah. I, I think it would very much depend on the character of, of the cat, wouldn't it? Yeah. Big snooker fan named after Alex Higgins.
0: <laughs> or the butler from Magnum P.I. Was, was he that? called Higgins? That was oh, Higgins, wasn't it? I think so, Yeah. yeah. No idea. <laughs> I think it definitely was. So I'm just imagining a cat with a big round face and a little moustache. So... <laughs>
1: Which was really good at snooker.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's all the various
1: Higgins rolled into really one. Really bad-tempered snooker player.
0: <laughs> Imagine, that's he's named it because he's been watching watching British sport. It, mind you, 1977, This I haven't actually got this noted down, but 1977 was basically when snooker first started being broadcast. It was it the it is, year it started it, at the Crucible. Yeah, it's, so it went to the it's Crucible. It's all aligning, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Higgins was more significant than we thought. In the archive of Evan Hunter, you'll like this. There's a one entry outside of a load of letters and correspondence from 1977 that's listed, and it's a bit of his research. It's a copy of a book, well, some pages from a book, and the book is called A Collector's Guide to Pressing Irons and Trivets. Right, <laughs> okay. So that he wrote? No, no, it's just something <laughs> he's been using for research. Oh, right. <laughs> so I'm not sure what book it's for. Possibly... He was writing about the the book Lizzie, I think, at the time, about Lizzie Borden. So it might ah, be about right.
2: domestic things from then. I don't know. Not just a, a thriller set in the exciting word of vintage trivets.
0: <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> no film or TV directly linked to McBain that year in 1977, but there is... 1977 is the year that Inkar comes out, which is the Bollywood adaptation of High and Low, mm. which is the adaptation of King's Ransom, oh, yeah, which yeah. I covered on the podcast with Lorraine a couple of years yeah. ago as well. Even that I, even I that premiered in India on the 18th of November, 1977. Fantastic. And I suspect he went his entire life and never heard about it once. <laughs> Probably. Right, so I would think that's caught up with McBain's time Yeah. There. Well, Although one thing
1: reasonably busy
0: between the last book and the book we've done, what we're doing now, is he released a book called Guns, a standalone McBain, which I recently read, and I believe Morgan has not recently read <laughs> many many years ago, and I've never
1: read. Is it set in Iceland?
0: No, it's 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 not even in the world. Oh, it's set right. it's set in New York. Oh. But you'd be forgiven for picking it up off a shelf, and I'd probably bought this thinking. Oh, this is an eighty-seven precinct book. because the edition I've got is, and you as well is the exact same thing. Yeah,
2: Gold Strike McBain.
0: What do you remember of your feelings about it, Morgan? Um,
2: I'm sure I really enjoyed it at the time. I can remember very little about it. Really, it's just. Can I have a read of the back of it? Yeah, absolutely. he follows a kind of gang member in sort of seventies, like grubby New York.
1: Yeah, oh, he loves his gangs, doesn't he? I'm reaching the point where, having read uh, A Long Time No See, he's obsessed with gangs.
0: I think there is a period where the gangs thing crops up too much. Mm. But it may actually be, it's not that often, it's just every other book or something like that. Mm. There's something about it. And I I remember when I was first reading the 87th Precinct books, going, oh, not another gangs one. Mm. But, you know, he was also writing about doing research for gangs for a standalone book called Walk Proud, which became a film. Oh, right. So... Gangs were very much on his mind almost yes. all the time. Anyway, yeah. but yeah, Guns is an interesting one. I'm not sure it's brilliant. It's a basically a man on the run book mm. about a, a heist that goes wrong. In some ways, do you know what it reminded you of? I said I I said to you two guys I'd started reading The Onion Field. Yeah, by Joseph Wamba and I had to stop because it was way way too depressing to be reading in the run up to Christmas. Yeah, it's not
2: very festive.
0: But the way that sets up the characters, their relationships, their times in prison, mm. this is he's sort of done a mini version of that in Guns, mm. very similar of having the the relationship patterns and prison patterns of the members of the heist squad, you know, that are knocking over shops to make money. Mm. So it's quite I think that was in the air as well, possibly. And and but then it basically ends up all going wrong, and and Colly Donato is on the run. But what is interesting about this? In fact, you know, I'm going to hold some of that in reserve and try and remember to mention it at an appropriate <laughs> point in, when we're talking about long time no see. Anyway, it's all right. Yeah, I miss it. Not, be, you know, it could have been an eight seventh precinct one told from the perspective of a
2: of the baddie. Yeah, which which can be interesting as we've as yeah we've seen just kind of setting things in that world but approaching them from a slightly different angle. But I will also say the 87th Precinct books, it's, they're not exactly
0: hard-hitting, but they don't pretend to be not realistic. There's swearing, there's violence, mm. there's sex. In these standalone ones, there's more swearing, there's more violence, there's more sex, there's more discussion of race, mm. there's more use of racial epithets, which I'm sure were realistic to the world he's trying to write about. But it is it's noticeably like a mm. notch higher than in the 87th Precinct, I think. Mm and he
1: wrote that onto yeah, McBain yeah as a McBain
0: book because it's a it's a crime book set in New York which oh. is McBain rather than Hunter Morgan just hit his microphone stand I'm very sorry everyone I will discipline I do him apologize. later I
1: start again <laughs> that's it
0: yeah podcast ah. cancelled <laughs> okay right quickly before we get stuck into the book then 1977
1: Oh, right
0: who was the Prime Minister
1: Callaghan
0: it was Callaghan yes. who was the President in America
1: or, uh, oh no, would it, it be Carter G- by Carsey,
2: yeah.
0: yeah, Ford outgoing, Carter incoming. Yeah. Anything else from 1977 you'd like to proffer up that you know about it? Being two years before you guys were born, year before I was born. God, oh, we're almost overlapping what, with any, our actual hey. lives. What happened in
1: 1977? I reckon some motorway was open somewhere. No. <laughs> some <laughs> well, great, probably. Some
0: great bridge. What you were supposed to do is wave a tiny Union Jack. Oh, A bit oh, of like course. Nigel Farage the, yeah. today. Because it's um, yes, Silver it Jubilee. Jubilee indeed. It? God
2: save the Queen and all that. Et cetera. Yeah. So no mugs beans, and mate. knickknacks. Yeah.
1: You're still seeing like little antique shops. Yeah. The very young looking yeah. Queen. Well, younger looking well, Queen.
0: So it was Silver Jubilee year for Queen Elizabeth II. She toured around the Commonwealth basically that year. Yeah.
2: Good on her. Yeah. So there you go. Getting pestered by the Sex Pistols and and all that. Well. Did she ever listen to that song?
1: I bet she must have done.
2: <laughs> Give us a do potted we, history we, of what the Sex Pistols did in 1977, reckon? Morgan. Um, kept. Signing to record labels and then getting dropped before they managed to release a, a record, Most mostly EMI and A&M, and then finally landing with Virgin. I guess by that point, they'd already booted Glenn Matlock out of the band, who was the competent bass player and one of the main songwriters, and got Sid Vicious in, who wasn't competent, but had very spiky hair. Yeah, um, Essential. And then yeah, I guess they'd be releasing a little string of classic singles and recording, never mind the bollocks. And then shortly after that, they'd be—if come nineteen seventy-eight—they'd be zipping off to America to implode. Yeah, so a uh, bit, bit of a brief but um, bright burning kind of yes. uh, run there for them. Oh, attempting to play and failing to play because they were banned everywhere, so they had the to tour as spots. No right, sex, Pist- sex pistols on tour secretly.
0: Oh, well, that makes sense. Yep. Good, good punk update. Thank you, Morgan. <laughs> I will tell you, I've got very few little things here to mention. Oh, dear me. It's two days before Britain leaves the European Union. In January of 1977, it was the first time Britain held the presidency of the European Union, because we'd just joined, essentially. And, yeah, let's not talk about that. That's uh, depressing. More exciting is that the Ford Fiesta goes on sale in the UK in in January of 1977. Excellent. The first car I remember my family having was a Ford Fiesta, an A-Reg Ford Fiesta. Oh, right. I know many of my my friends' mum had one. Good little car. My next thing on the list is that in June of 1977, an American chap called Ray Sullivan became a seven-time strikey by lightning he was struck oh, by lightning seven times
2: yeah was he like a park ranger he or was something? yeah, yeah. I suppose what that's in a, a day what in no in his, li- in his life in his life yeah.
0: yeah oh right his life which rather tragically ended a few years later when he shot himself mm. due to unrequited love apparently and yet it only took one strike of lightning to kill
1: Dracula in the scars of, of Dracula. Dracula
0: yeah I know
1: so you know what does that tell you about well Dr- Dracula he oh, can also Rangers. be killed
2: by a prickly bush, though, and I suspect Ray Sloven would have survived many a prickly yeah. bush in his years as a park ranger.
0: Oh, I think probably on day one of park ranger recruitment, the first question they ask you is, how would you feel about prickly bushes? And if you say, I'm not keen, question two is, are you a vampire? <laughs> yeah. They just lash uh, you in one yeah. and see yeah. we get on.
2: Yeah. <laughs> if you didn't
1: dissolve and disappear.
2: Satanic rights.
1: If you didn't dissolve then uh, you're in.
0: I do hope some people start listening to this podcast for the first time and drop in at this point where we're just talking about (laughs) vampires being broken by prickly bushes.
1: So seven times in (laughs) a lifetime.
0: Yeah, Yeah, Guinness World Record holder. I think also in June, this was interesting, the reason I wrote this down was, have you seen the film The Blues Brothers?
2: Oh, indeed. indeed.
0: And there's a scene in it with Illinois Nazis who they basically drive off a bridge, and then they spend the rest of the film chasing them. I didn't realise Illinois Nazis were a real thing. Organised, uniform-wearing, marching. So basically, the National Socialist Party of America took the village of Skokie, which is in Illinois, to the Supreme Court, who ruled that they were allowed to... Eventually, they ruled in the favour of the of the Nazis, basically, to say, you can march through there because it's freedom of speech. And so... This guy who led them, who was a, excuse me everyone, prick. <laughs> well, I suspect they were all pricks. They yes. were Nazis. One would imagine so. Yeah. They decided to march through Chicago instead anyway. But I didn't realise that, that must have been in the air before they made the Blues Brothers, which was only in yeah. 1980. Mm. Illinois, I hate <laughs> Illinois Nazis. New York City blackout in July. Blacked oh, out yeah. for 25 hours and everyone went mad. Yeah. Did
1: him? Yeah. I've never heard about that.
0: I'm trying to think whether there's any reference to it coming up in any McBain books because it seems such an obvious thing because you know yeah like there was looting and rioting was there? yeah 25 hours and everyone turned into animals
2: apparently oh, wow you feel like that's got to crop up somewhere hasn't it
0: yeah i've got and there's two or three little music things as the year goes along elvis dies in oh, august 1977 we don't need to go on about that, everyone knows that. There's the Leonard Skinner plane crash. Oh yeah. So that's quite dramatic. But Meat Roaf releases Battle of Hell. Well, Indeed. Not all bad. Yeah. So at least we've got some overblown music about motorbikes <laughs> to appreciate. <laughs> and before we get on with the book, we have one question from our listeners, and this is from our friend Andrew at Much ado About Nil on Twitter. And he Asks us. If Evan was still alive, Evan Hunter was still alive, and we had the chance to interview him, say we all got told, right, for the podcast, you can go and interview him next week, and if he's still alive, obviously, what would be the questions we'd be dying to ask? Oh my goodness. It is tricky, isn't it? I think... I think we need to think about that. Yeah. Well, ponder it, and we'll come back to it. Yeah, I I think so, yeah. Because definitely, you'd have to write some questions, wouldn't you? But uh, You wouldn't really. want to be asking the same ones that everyone always asks in all the interviews I mm. read with him. That would be the problem, wouldn't it? Yeah. Try and catch him out. <laughs> anyway, on to the book. Long time no see. Who wants to give us a little pricey overview for every everyone? Shall I? Do it, Steve. Or plot-wise, or all-wise. Yeah, give us a little
1: overview. Or Plot wise, well, I, what got it, I got this story. I, well, I got it off my uh, shelf the other day, and one noticed that it is a little thicker than most of the other entries in the series. they was a bit my more substantial, aren't they? First the point. impression was its thickness, and thus started reading. So it involves initially the slaying uh, of a blind. Well, who's a beggar, essentially, but a a, um, a pensioned-off war veteran who's only quite a young man, isn't he? 30, something like that. He's been in the Uh, Vietnam War. Killed on the street, his dogs chloroformed. And then shortly after that, um, well, the one thing we do know about his death is that the person who kills him uh, shouts, Where is it? Where is it? And then he kills him. And then shortly after, his wife, who is also blind, is murdered by somebody masquerading as a police detective mm-hmm. or police patrolman. Yeah. And their room is uh, ransacked. So some searching for some mysterious object. And then thus starts the investigation for quite a while. And then... Perhaps the, uh, not too much happens after that whilst the investigation is <laughs> going on. true, it's, well, it's true. It is and then there is the killing a of, of a third one. blind person. Now, who's that? Now, I don't want to say that's somebody and nobody, but it's just a, 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 a fresh character to the scene that you don't really yeah. know much about and don't end up finding too much about. And then they basically sort it all out. And Bob's, yeah. your
2: and Bob's your uncle and... Everyone goes home. Aunt. That's it, yeah.
1: So, yeah, because quite strangely, despite its thickness, the essential plot in terms of what happens and the crime itself is no more or less complicated than a standard entry, I would say. Yeah, we've, say. we've
2: it, definitely seen him dispense with plots like that in kind of half the length, yeah. really. But it's just, he's just taking a bit more time to kind of stretch out and and enjoy himself with some of the bits and definitely and the one
1: thing I found about this is maximum levels of descriptiveness particularly about uh, the fictional city and geography Mm. I I reckon you'd struggle to find another entry in the whole 55 books that describes the city uh, in as much detail as this book
0: it certainly does add to our knowledge of of the city it quite really a lot in, in in this one. I if, would agree. If you were
1: getting a blank piece of paper out and trying to draw a map, I reckon you would this, do. Yeah. You could do worse than start with this one, yeah. 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 Because there's absolutely loads of it all the way through.
2: Also, I think that the inflated page count allows for a lot more of the entertaining um asides from the narrator that i I always really enjoy and there are lots of them here it goes off on little diatribes which i find very enjoyable so that well one of the things that comes out of that and i was going to say did you spot loads of references to britain yes and england particularly seems to be particularly playing on his mind Uh, and and liverpool even (laughs) yeah so i think that's
0: what on page 39 or something like that liverpool
2: yeah Gennaro came
0: from Calm's Point, a part of the city that spoke American the way the people in Liverpool spoke English.
2: Oh, <laughs> I must have missed that. Is, is that where it's all, all discussing the, the fact that lower-class p- people, including criminals, use the word turlet? <laughs> yes, basically. I remember turlet. Yeah. Turlet? Sounds like from Lancashire. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, Richard Gennaro from <laughs> Lancashire.
1: Um, Going to the turlet...
0: Yeah, but there's about five or six points where he pointedly mm. says something about Britain. In yeah. fact, he refers to uh, a couple of places specifically in London. I think he may have just been picking sort of British-sounding street names.
1: Hmm. Did these
0: sell better
1: in Britain than America, Well, I have a theory curiously. about this.
0: I do have a theory about hey, this. You wonder. The year before, there was a big reissue campaign of the of earlier ones in paperback. Ah. And he did a lot of press for that. And I think he might have been in the UK on a book tour during 1976 or thereabouts. Also, because I know that someone contacted us through social media once who gave us, said, I've got these photos of Evan Hunter on a book tour in Glasgow in the 70s. So I think when they did the reissues with the new things coming out as well, he went and he did loads of press and he did he did a tour of bookshops in the UK. So I have a feeling he's come back and he's expressing some opinions <laughs> about <laughs> us in this book. Yeah, and I'm not going to say anything about his references to frigid British women, which are in here. Make of that what you will. Yes. But, yeah, I think it must have been on his mind anyway. That's my theory. I need to confirm the date, but I've not been able to confirm exactly when he was on this.
1: I remember him commenting about decimalisation and saying that's a step in the right direction.
0: (laughs) Well, he wasn't wrong. So, yeah, loads of British references in here and Mm -hmm. and a dig at the... Speech patterns of Liverpudlians, <laughs> wow. which we live with every day, yeah. as as fake scousers that we are. That's it, yeah. So here we go then. We've got a pile of dead blind people. Mm. We have. Is it just a psycho? Is is the setup basically? What do we think about the amount of dead ends in this? It's interesting, isn't it? That there's at least two, I think, big investigative bits that he goes down. Try to figure something out, Corella. Basically, oh. uh, turn into complete dead ends. The main one being when he discovers that the wife of the the murdered wife of the first murdered person has been having an affair with someone. He spends ages talking yeah. about that, investigating it.
1: They have, yeah, they have the dead end with the veteran's mother's fella, don't they? And yeah, yeah. like a just lot, a lot about straws. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, they just. Um, because, yeah, Corella f- flies solo in this book. pretty, pretty m- nice. may isn't it uh, a bit, a isn't sergeant, he? But yeah. uh, it's essentially Corella, isn't it? And he, yeah, like you say, just cl- clutching at st- the, straws. Yeah. In tot- oh,
2: a lot of frustrating dead ends. I think in terms of presenting a kind of um, plausible kind of account of a, a, an investigation, it's probably a good thing, really, rather than just sort of... Everything kind of slotting into place neatly, like it sometimes does in in, in a mystery novel. I think if, if we're if we're looking at police procedure, we probably want to see the you know a lot of it is just slogging through these possibilities and having yeah. to just eliminate things rather than using brilliant deduction to almost supernaturally kind of pinpoint the perpetrator of the crime, which you know you can see in in some crime novels.
0: Yeah, he doesn't sort of go, well, it was clear that this wasn't going anywhere, so Corella forgot about it. He does play it through to the end, doesn't he, yeah, on, on all of these ones. Mm-hmm. The best thing is he discovers that, eventually, that the... Isabel Harris, the murdered woman, the place she was working, stuffing envelopes with catalogues, when he only finally gets there, he discovers <laughs> that the catalogues are for really disgusting sex toys.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the boss says, well, she couldn't see them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Novelties, I think, is the word. Although you,
1: you also get the, uh, well, not even impression, like the only hired her because he could pay her less.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, aren't some of her co-workers kind of, like, bizarrely prudish about some of the clothes that she wears as well? It's like, if you're stuffing, working in a place that sells sort of marital aids, it, it, surely you wouldn't be particularly prudish. Well, I don't know, double well, standards, maybe.
1: Yeah, they, yeah, yeah they're, a, they're a funny bunch, all that. Lot, they they are, they? really.
2: It's a, a, an odd... Odd little company. Uh,
1: yeah, so the, yeah, there's the uh, the mother's fella and he's he's tra- training a boxer, isn't he? So there's yeah. a little bit about a little bit about that, and that's a, another dead end. Yeah, because um, there's
0: always the talk about who's going to get the insurance, you know, the life insurance, and that's always going to go up to this guy's mother and things like that.
1: But but he's on to the essential solution reasonably early in this. It just takes a lot just, of time well, to realize, work out. And I'm very impressed with the paperwork and records that the uh, American military hold. Of all the Although I suppose they wouldn't be that old. I mean, you know, 10 years old, I suppose, aren't they? I, I
2: guess so, actually. In, in uh,
1: but even so, yeah. Whether
0: they are as easily accessible as... It, I mean, I, he plays it as if all this stuff that he needs to get, this backstory of this veteran, uh, he plays it as if he's he's... Hamstrung by phone calls and procedure, a little bit. But I wonder if it would ever be actually as easy as mm. that the military would go, Oh, we'll help them, the police, and we'll send someone with an S, uh, you know, to take the papers down to the city or something like that. Yeah. Or whether it literally would be, it takes as long as it takes and it's coming in the post if you're getting it at all. Mm. But, you know, maybe that's where he has to make concessions for our sake as the reader. I guess so. Yeah. I did want to say one of my favourite things about this is there's a couple of references. There's a point where Corella and Maya Maya go to interview someone, Mrs. Harris, the mother of the murdered man, and it's like Maya Maya was sitting there, he was a cop, a real cop, and Corella's sitting there, he was a real cop. They the Basically, the reference is, he's not Columbo. Corella is not Columbo. Yeah. Or is that the Columbo? Yeah, Kojak. And, yeah, Maya, yeah. Maya Maya isn't Kojak.
1: Yeah he, wasn't wearing, yeah, he says he wasn't wearing a dirty Mac or dressed like the mayor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which I thought it was quite funny.
0: So Maya Maya's life is already being made a misery by the fact that Kojak's on television (laughs) (laughs) and and he's a bald cop. Yeah, I've not
1: really watched Kojak much, but I did see a snippet of it on telly the other day and it looked actually quite
0: good. Yeah, I've only watched literally a few minutes of Kojak. It's funny because it's such a big thing. Yeah, and he's
2: quite good as well, isn't he? Might give it a whirl. Yeah, Yeah. there has to be a reason why it's kind of that fondly remembered.
0: And not just the novelty of him being bald and sucking a lollipop. Yeah.
1: Or isn't he giving up smoking or something? That's why he sucks a I lollipop, think so, isn't
0: yeah, it? That's sure. the, yeah. But anyway, I've done more than my fair share of Columbo watching, so no one can accuse me of not uh, not watching 1970s cop dramas. Very true. Between that and Quincy, so I'm looking. I've got these all the little blue tabs in here. So Maya Maya, he's fed up. Quite a lot of good Maya Maya backstory in here he's as well. He has got a
1: really bad hangover at one point, hasn't he?
0: <laughs> yes, because he's uh, Erwin been... the vermin. whatever <laughs> oh, you He's recalls. getting yeah. married. Yeah. <laughs> Some good squad room scenes as well, and a lot of a lot of the squad room banter and the stuff surrounding it is because once the chloroformed seeing eye dog, oh the, the the guide dog for the blind man, it comes round, everyone's just trying. to... It's like you can't leave this dog here, you can't you can't leave it here, you can't leave it here. If you leave it here, it's going to be destroyed. And Corella's trying to constantly whilst investigating mm-hmm. this case. Constantly ringing round places. Can you take him? Can you look after him? And everyone's like, for a bit, for a bit, for a bit. And so by the
2: end of this book, corella has got a dog. Yeah. I seem to recall the guy from the dog section is particularly... Oh, he's an absolute... Yeah, he's an absolute
1: pain, isn't
2: he? (laughs) Just really nasty, (laughs) foul-mouthed, kind of impatient get.
1: Yeah, Yeah. you're going to call me first thing. It's like, it's only five past nine. I've been since eight. That's first thing.
0: We do get into a couple of different um, precincts as well in this one. Yeah, we do. And there's a great bit where Corella's like, oh, there's a call come from outside the precinct. Please don't let it be where Fat Ollie is. Please don't <laughs> let it be the 8-3. And it turns out to be the 8-5. But we also get the 41st precinct as well at some point. And it's like, oh, there's all these little stories going on somewhere else where you just get a little snippet of a character. And you just think, oh, I'd like to know about that.
1: Yeah, one of them's <laughs> called yeah, Cutler's Last Stand, is it, after the... The guy was in charge of the precinct, and you think, oh, an entire another world of yeah. books could exist about that.
0: Yeah, well, in fact, I've got the seven
1: this- sevens known as being the lucky precinct, even though it's got the highest crime rate in the city. <laughs> all these little...
0: Yeah, Chapter 11 basically opens with a description of all the different sorts of precincts in and where they are in mm. the city as well, which, like yeah. you say, is a really good bit of description for the, yeah, the yeah. world building. Isla was divided into 23 precincts and five of those were up in diamond back and then he explains all of what they are, where they are. Yeah, and when they,
1: am- they say it's Isla's into in 23, Isla just being the island bit. Yeah. So the the, the the reason why there's... Obviously the numbers go into the hundreds is because
2: that includes all the bits that aren't uh, in Isola. I Isler. guess they, they, they start yeah. the, the lower numbers are out in the boroughs, are they, I assume? I think so. And if my... Yeah, Admittedly,
0: limited knowledge of New York uh, precinct numbering is anything to go by. There would have been a lot more smaller precincts earlier on, which over the years would have merged, and so you don't actually have a consistent numbering. So yeah. there wasn't there wasn't like a number one up to a hundred first.
1: Well, even even in that, they say that they like skipped a number because they like like the eight three and the eight five and the eight seven mm. and the eight nine and then the one oh one or something. So.
0: Yeah, I think it's it, it. seems pretty reflective of what it actually yeah. is like in New York itself, which is quite good. So I like. How it. How big are the precincts then? So right. would 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 like the eight seven be like the size
1: of, of what like, Tree? Bigger, I probably think,
0: a bit bigger. Think, think South, bigger, South, bigger, South it Liverpool.
2: Seems, it seems to encompass quite a lot when the. the
0: yeah, well, the descriptions when you read them of, of the eighty seventh precinct is essentially it's it's all of one side of Central Park, more or less. Hmm.
2: So it's going to be like the, between Central Park be like, and the river. It's going to be yeah. like
1: the size of our parliamentary constituencies, then, isn't it? You know, like
2: something like that, maybe. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah there's definitely there's very specific descriptions of it, yeah. of what it is, which I don't have to hand at the moment. Yeah, they, but they, yeah, they, they, the they real sorry, world version to imagine is basically all of. One side of Central Park to the yeah. river, more or less. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So another one of those dead ends is where Corella has to go to find the niece of one of the murdered women, and she turns, who's told, who's told her her auntie, this blind woman, that she's moved to Chicago and is actually just working in a strip, cl- uh, not a strip club, a massage parlor. A massage
2: parlor, and we get get a little kind of um, sort of. Description of how massage parlours managed to operate these uh, operations kind of un- under the radar as well, which is another sort of bit of uh, insight into the criminal underworld of of Iceland as well. Yeah,
1: it seemed largely unnecessary, all that though, because surely to God he would have just <laughs> waited for it to go home, wouldn't he? Yeah, I don't know. I it don't just know. all seemed a bit odd that. You didn't
0: gesture. want to see Corella in a towel? Yeah, well,
1: yeah. Just thought seemed a bit odd.
0: <laughs> but it gives him an opportunity to do it. I think that's the main comedy character in there, isn't it? The guy oh. in the massage parlour who thinks this Corella's been a you know, <laughs> skipping a turn or whatever yeah. it is with one of the girls. And he's like, Can I just have a word? Takes him aside. He's like a fat bloke called Arthur or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Arthur, that's him, yeah. So that's quite a nice little funny bit. <laughs> But what we really need to talk about here and I think this is the main thing that stands out for me in this book is essentially we have a lot to do with the army. Corella goes to do his research he discovers that the first victim, James Harris was blinded while he was in Vietnam since then his treatment has involved a lot of sort of psychiatric work discussions of dreams psychoanalysis because he's been having these nightmares. So he goes up to this this military hospital where he meets a very flirtatious person. Mm-hmm. So we get Corella being teased with the opportunity to commit some extramarital affair. Yeah. Which, of course, he doesn't, being Corella. But we get this transcript of a dream thing recorded on tape. A really weird dream. Mm-hmm. And then the book is full of loads of psychoanalysis or discussions of what could this dream mean? Uh, what uh, Did it feel real to you, that stuff? I mean, it's interpretation of dreams as one of your main plot-solving
1: Yeah, I found that completely ridiculous, to be honest. But the fact that it was even on record to start with, and the fact... I just cannot believe for a minute that you would start looking for a solution to a murder ten years later on the basis of some really mad dream about a christmas tree yeah and that all that bit of it and the solution did all seem ultra contrived to be honest and i love gustav millerman's book of dreams that tells you what every <laughs> dream's about but yeah it did seem a bit daft for want of a better word or that really I mean, and in fact, not daft in terms of that you can look into dreams because, of course, you can and come to solutions. But the fact that you'd even start there as a potential solution to uh, the, the uh, a crime, really,
0: hmm.
2: it's an it is an interesting one. I, don't, I mean, if if you're looking just because I guess he starts out by just looking for anything on him at all. Cause they, they know very little. If, if the one thing that does turn up when he's looking for any kind of shred about this guy's life is the report of this dream. And that's kind of all that's left to go on when you've chased down every other dead end. I suppose it does become quite significant. And you, if you have to base an investigation on that when there's nothing else... Then uh, that's how I viewed it. In order to make it plausible to me,
0: yeah, I understand that. And like, but <laughs> you sort of have you have two things. You have the actual playback and transcript of this guy talking about his nightmares, mm. which is about a gang, essentially leads him to some sort of revelation about a gang and a potential gang rape when mm. they were when he was young, which then Corella follows up, and then later we have Corella talking to a police psychologist saying, what do you make of all of this? So he needs someone to help him interpret the interpretation Mm. of the the dreams, which I think is tricky, because essentially this is all based on Freudian analysis, which by 1977 was already, I think, considered to be largely bullshit. (laughs) Uh, Jungian analysis and all that sort of stuff. But I don't know enough about it no, as, a, I, as a yeah, topic, other than I think by then, you know, dream, simple dream interpretation in the Freudian style was already a bit like, yeah, not sure.
1: But he ends up getting there in the end by just essentially tracking down all these army buddies, which mm. he would have done without that dream. So it, it almost becomes slightly irrelevant. Yeah, And possibly. yet takes up a massive chunk of the
0: book, really. It does, and I think that's one of the things that makes a book longer is the fact that he's gone into this that much level of detail about the backstory. The green story.
1: carpet and his mum having a penis when she lifts up a skirt or something. Is that in your <laughs>
0: book of dreams? No,
1: <laughs> Max Maximilian uh, Gustav Milliman doesn't make mention of that.
0: <laughs> I think you should reread it to see if you can work it out. But I will say one thing: the um, the military background he decides to give Jimmy Harris, it was interesting, one of our friends on Twitter, Hank Wellman, mentioned that one of the good things about Jimmy Harris, even though he's a corpse, basically, in chapter one, uh-huh. is he has a full life in the city, mm-hmm. and you get to experience that. Yeah. You have you see his time as a gang, you see his time as a kid, you see his time moving into, into the army, and then you see the the, out, the outcome of that once he gets back as a vet. Yeah. And you don't normally get to see that with... These ancillary characters, no. which is an interesting thing. So yeah. that's it, makes him a very real victim. But his military background, checked because they're talking about Operation Ala Moana. Oh. So I thought, is that a real one? Sounded pretty plausible to yeah. me. And it was 1966 1967. Operation Ala Moana was the code name for the combat operations of the 25th Infantry Division in December 1966, which was in areas near Saigon and in the Hobo Woods which began on December the 1st, 1966, which tallies in exactly with what yeah. McBain says in the book. And the point was the 25th Infantry Division, it was designed to keep the Viet Cong away from rice-producing areas. Ah. So that was a point of, of that military exercise, which is where this thing in the past, the blinding incident for a kickoff yeah. happens to Jimmy Harris and also the events that lead to a rather interesting denouement to Indeed. this book, which... Spoiler policy, no spoiler policy. <laughs> We're going to have to sort of talk about We're a little bit, aren't to we, to wrap it up? A
1: bit. Yeah, I headlong.
0: Yeah, I think, well, we need to go, we need to pile headlong into Major Tataglia's office. Yeah. Who took over once the platoon's leader was killed or was.
1: Let's well, try and get this right. He was killed in the action, I suppose. Yeah. Wasn't he?
0: But there's a. Corella <laughs> plays a very TV detective y sort of trick here, hmm. because another attempt is made on a blind person's life, and another dog is supposed to be chloroformed, but it doesn't work, oh. and so we know that if this is the same attacker, he's been bitten by the dog. Okay. Which ultimately, eventually comes around to Corella, when someone... You see Sam that, Grossman joins up the dots.
1: That, that was another slightly unbelievable bit, in that they'd, go, they'd send out the lab people in for, to collect blood samples of a dog bite... Well, Even before they knew it was significant.
0: Could have been rabies, though. Rabies is mentioned a lot in this. Hmm. And let me tell you, let me tell everyone, oh. for the past four days at my work, I have spent, I've spent it entirely making a presentation about rabies. Oh, I no. now know more about rabies, and I'm much more terrified about it Uh-oh. than I've ever been in my life. Oh, heck. And rabies keeps cropping up in long time no see. And, in fact, in guns, this is what I was going to mention...
2: It also has loads of stuff about rabies Gosh. in at the end of it. Well. Probably around this... Time, I don't know the date, actually. But I'm guessing it might be around this time that Stephen King may have written Cujo, a top rabies novel. Oh, blinding. Um I think rabies must have been <laughs> an issue of the day. Rabies. Yes. Particularly. Well, 99%, more than
0: 99% of rabies transmission is done by dog bite. So, yeah no laughing matter. It certainly isn't. It's a horrible, horrible thing. You have, if you have clinical symptoms of rabies, you are dead, essentially. I'm what, not going to talk. What
1: are s- the symptoms?
0: Well, do you really want to know? It's horrible. Rabies starts Just off... Just give me one. Well, I can give you one. Death. Starts off with like headaches, aching, then shaking, tremors, mm. fever hallucination, dangerous behaviour, including biting, because the disease is trying to get you to bite someone, to pass it on. And then eventually paralysis, coma and death. All right. It's a laugh a minute with rabies. That's basically all I've been doing for the past four days. Between that and the coronavirus, it's
2: uh,
0: terrifying.
2: Yeah. I was a few years out with Cujo, 1981.
0: Uh, Well, you know, it's not that. in the grand scheme of things. (laughs) In geological terms, that's at the same time. But I've forgotten how i got into to rabies now, <laughs> other than... Yeah. But yeah, I was going to say, Corella plays a bit of a trick on, on on basically the guy he's trying to catch who's figured out has done it, who's playing by strict legal rules. Ah. He's basically saying, No, oh, that dog had rabies.
2: <laughs>
0: but it doesn't work. His gambit doesn't work anyway.
1: You've not mentioned how they know it's him. The clue was there all along, wasn't it? If... The- to be more thorough in their search initially, they'd have it uh-huh. out straight away, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because they find a key attached to the dog. So it's looking the dog's collar, which they immediately work out is a safety deposit box in which is kept a um, a ransom letter.
0: Oh, yeah. So it's a big <laughs> blackmail. No. Because the other
1: thing we should have mentioned is they have a big reunion, don't they? They oh, find out yes, it's a big that's reunion, ten-year reunion with his old army buddies after which his mother gets the impression that he's up to something, that he's got yeah. some get-rich scheme. But it's all if buts and maybes, really, and they yep. don't really know anything. And Carella quizzes all the army buddies, and then they end up finding the key on the dog when it comes back from the the dog squad. Um, dog squad! And then there's a, um, a letter to this fella saying, I know you killed... So-and-so. So and so and I want a $1,000 every month. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so the solution is just revealed plain and simply. Simply.
0: Yeah, it's true. That's basically what happens, although we haven't been too specific, so I'm sure you haven't ruined it for anyone who hasn't read it yet. But we better start getting into summing up territory. I will just say, I didn't mention at the top of this, what I normally mention is the publication history of this. Is that it initially came out in Random House publications 1977 in Hardback in America and then later in Bantam edition in 1979 in the uk we're still Ham- Hamish Hamilton 1977 and Pan 1979 and the dedication inside the book is this is for Ronnie and Lucille King about whom I could find nothing oh so i did I did search and I normally can find a hint, but suddenly on this occasion I could not. Aww.
2: Poor old Ronnie and Lucille.
0: Indeed. Well, they'll know they are. <laughs> so, perhaps he made them up. Maybe he did. We need to sum up and give a grade for this. Really, a mm. a value in police shields using our patented Kenneth system.
2: Oof! Now it's a while since uh, we've refreshed our memory of the uh, the Kenneth scores. Indeed. Yeah. So.
0: I will start talking, and I'll hand Steve-O the Kenneth score archive to... Are you you
1: going to score first, then? I'll
0: score first this time. Long Time No See. A very interesting novel, I think, in the whole history of the 87th Precinct, because, as Steve-O pertained to right from the off, it's a thicker book. As Morgan pertained to, it's got the author's voice becoming very particular in a certain way, and... It's not quite into the thriller territory, as I've mentioned in the past, Hmm. but we're getting there. We're definitely getting there. And I reckon the next few books are a transition between what you'd call strictly police procedural and what you would call a thriller. And I don't mean a thriller in the Wilbur Smith Airport book sense, necessarily, but slightly more in that 80s mould of stuff. Anyway, I like the story. I find the psychoanalysis stuff tricky, but psychoanalysis is more of an American preoccupation anyway. And McBain himself was seeing a psychoanalyst for years hmm. that he'd thought didn't do him any good and eventually diagnosed him as being the guy with, <laughs> the guy with writer's block in a period where he'd produced hundreds of books, loads of screenplays, <laughs> and this guy remembered him as, oh, the one with writer's block. <laughs> uh, so There's, if anyone wants to listen, on the BBC iPlayer, you can still listen to In the Psychiatrist's Chair with Ed McBain, which is a very interesting listen, as much about what he doesn't talk about as as what he does really. (laughs) So I am going to simply sum up now and I'm going to give this a rating of it's good definitely not one of my favourites, but it's very solid, so it's 78 police shields for me. Okay. 78 police shields from Paul to long time no see, and I'm going to open the floor to
2: Morgan. Okay, well It was another one which I was reading for the first time. Oh, excellent. Um, Well, this will be interesting then. Yeah. Um, To be honest, I I thought it was an absolute corker. Brilliant. Uh, Really, really enjoyed it. I I do take your points about the psychoanalysis stuff on board, any of the slightly less plausible bits. But I kind of don't care. I, I was, I was really, really enjoying it. I quite like the the slightly more leisurely pacing of it than some of them. Yeah. I liked that you could hear that kind of endearingly kind of cranky narrator's voice coming in, which I, I always really enjoy in these books. Mm-hmm. Quite a, a lot of room for sort of interesting characters and just sort of yeah the discourses about the the, the city. I, I just I just love that. It's got a lot of things that I'm most enjoying these books in. So uh, for me, it was a an enthusiastic two thumbs up and a very healthy 86 police shields. Nice. Oof, oof. And now Mr. Stephen Royston,
0: who's going to return my pad to me because he's, he's, I don't know what he's doing on it. He might be hacking. <laughs>
1: um. Yeah, well, I suppose I've summed it up in my pre... Yeah, no, I very much enjoyed it and has a lot going for it in terms of its... Uh, detailed, uh, you get a good flavour and picture of the city in this. The slight downside is the plot is a little daft. Well, not the plot, but the the solution maybe. <laughs> uh, but yes, still very enjoyable. Uh, and I will go about seventy-four police shields.
0: Okay, and that gives us a result with our patented rounding down system of <laughs> seventy-nine police shields. 79, oh, yeah. yeah okay. Pretty solid, that. Yeah, 8 out of 10, just about. And on the subject of how it was received, I've got a few reviews of this book Oof. that I've managed to find. So, for instance, the Kirkus, which is a this a publisher reviewing thing oh. at the time, so 4th of May 1977, was pretty keen on it. That was it. Let me just get the good phrase. McBain again paces the jog trot of police work into a mesmerising, affecting drama where nothing seems staged for effect. The job trot? The job trot. Jog trot. Jog trot. Jog trot. What the I think that basically does... means the, the the footwork, the yeah. slog of it. I like have it, never yet. heard of that word no, well, neither in my life. Not. But to counter that, we have Newgate calendar. Of course we do. Which I'm not going to give, give no, you the opportunity no, no. to do the. Newgate Calendar in the Newgate in the Newgate Times, Newgate Calendar in the New York Times, 12th of June 1977. There are procedurals and procedurals. By now, the 87th Precinct stories of Ed McBain have sold millions upon millions. The publishers cite an incredible figure: over 250 million copies worldwide. (sighs) (laughs) The idea is intriguing. The writing is wretched. McBain has the instincts of a good storyteller, but his literary style can be arch-cutesy and full of pseudo-philosophical or pseudo-sociological asides that have all the intellectual strength of the late Arthur Brisbane. I don't know who Arthur Brisbane is. I should have researched that, really. it basically says, still, McBain must have something to attract so sizable a following. You figure it out.
2: Uh, I, I can't. Oh, he gets my goat. Um, <laughs> he just, he just he really hates him. I, I forgot what his real name is, but he's, he's a, he, was also, he was mainly a music critic, wasn't he? And I think he was also well known for all, just slagging off Leonard Bernstein for some reason too. Who was just, that? The, the Newgate Calendar in his in his real life persona. Oh right. Um, it's just just a can't do it. Can't do himself, so he just sneers at everyone else. What yeah. a rotter.
0: <laughs> the Observer, Morris Richardson, their crime reviewer. A welcome comeback to documentary doom-laden big city form by Ed McBee, who has been getting rather costive. Which is a good word. Oh. The Times, 29th of July. He's getting reviewed in The Times, you know, which basically says it's good, yeah, essentially. It, it basically praises the how real it feels when you read these books. And the listener, I don't know what the listener was, it's some sort of paper, but it had a book review section. The new McBain is something of a disappointment. Oh, McBain's getting too socially conscious
2: for the job. I think he was always socially yeah. conscious. I, I think that's, that's a definite feature of the books. So it seems odd to comment on that at this stage.
0: Yeah. So before we close, what questions would we ask Evan Hunter if we went and saw him tomorrow? Still don't know.
1: Why are you so mean to Burt Kling?
0: I think he got asked that quite a lot. <laughs> I think that is that is one. I think I would want to press him on on how much of the real world is in this book. How much of you is Corella? Because he always sort of says, a little bit. Or he says, no, I don't take my plots from real world inspirations. I'd like to sort of say... He definitely does yeah. sometimes. You can just totally spot some of them, can't you? Corella's yeah? the
1: guy he wants to be and he isn't.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Mm, I suspect, and I think I'd
1: want—I want, want to ask him what he's got with uh, this obsession with blind, blind people, blind. deaf people,
0: people with yeah. So because oh, it—it
1: yeah. uh, runs through so many of these books.
0: So people who've got some sort of uh, some sort of. Physical impairment yeah. to, to hearing or sight or, or whatever.
2: Yeah, I guess you, you do get more people with impairments cropping up than in many the of well, the
1: uh, you know like the angelic wife and the Moriarty
0: villain both deaf. Yeah, it's quite curious that. Yeah, it'd be worth that would be worth checking in on him. I would definitely want. I definitely want to press him more on his feelings about Hill Street Blues. <laughs> see if I could actually talk him round to admit
2: him that it's not really <laughs> what yeah, he thinks it is it'd be nice to know why he was so upset about that and not about apparently as far as you can gather about Barney, barney Miller. Miller, yeah oh, that'd be a good one. We'd ask him yeah. about barney Miller definitely. yeah did did you say you haven't found him commenting no, on that can't at find all? anything about him referring it seem to him hot, doesn't it? I'd also like to know his feelings on Newgate Calendar, because I feel like oh, yeah. he, he deserves the right to reply, frankly.
0: Yes, I think that would be it. I think the opening gambit would be, so New York Times critic, Newgate Calendar, and then you just watch his head blow up. <laughs> I suspect he wouldn't have many kind words yeah, for him. One would I'd ask him who Ronnie
1: take... and uh, Lucille King were.
2: Fair enough. <laughs> you get the impression that uh, yeah, he didn't really kind of like, take criticism particularly kindly anyway. No, I think he was quick to anger. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I know he was because
0: people have told me face-to-face. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there would be lots to ask him. There'd be so much you'd want to ask him. That's that then. Long time no see. Join us for our bonus episode where we will discuss, as always, the book covers, particularly, and especially some more stuff about what was going on in 1977. Until that comes out, we're going to say goodbye. So I'll say goodbye.
2: Goodbye. Fairly well.